0: Good morning. Well, it's a joy to be here. And as Harry has said, um, my whole time in the United States, we come out in 1994 from Belfast in Northern Ireland. My wife's from Glasgow in Scotland, if you haven't already noticed the accent. They say you can tell an Irishman, but you can't tell him much. And, uh, it's, and we come out in 1994, and ever since then, our lives have been intertwined with the Master's uh, University and Seminary. Um, I came out to go to the seminary in 1994, graduated in 1999. I pastored Placerita Baptist Church for over seven years and enjoyed a large number of the student body coming on Sunday morning and Sunday night. My three daughters, Angela, Laura, and Beth, are all graduates from the college, and uh, wear that badge proudly wherever they go and are deeply thankful uh, to the professors uh, that they sat under, and they draw from the deposit of uh, their teaching each and every day of their lives. And then several years ago, uh, my friend and mentor, Dr. MacArthur, gave me the rare privilege of becoming a board member at the school. And so it's a delight to be here. I hope you're embracing and enjoying the Master's University and understand that you have an inestimable privilege to be a student at this school. And I hope you're drinking uh, from the faucet of uh, the learning that's available to you here. Uh, you're not only gain, going to gain an education. I think if you submit and you learn and you're hungry, you're going to leave with godly wisdom, and uh, that's an important thing. In all you're getting, Proverbs says, get wisdom. I hope you know the difference, right? I think it was Spurgeon that said, um, knowledge is the acquis- or, or, uh, education is the acquisition of knowledge. Wisdom is the right application of that knowledge. And I think the Master's College will school you in the skill of living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Someone has said that um, knowledge is knowing that tomatoes are fruits. Wisdom is knowing they don't belong in a fruit salad. And I hope you can tell the difference, and I hope you're gaining both knowledge and wisdom uh, during your time here at the Master's University. So let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I want to read from verses 10 through 13. I believe the theme at the college, the the university this semester is Christ is all. And I want to speak this morning on the subject of contentment, and I want to remind you that Christ is all in all things, that whatever you face in life, wherever life takes you, the Lord Jesus Christ will prove to be a sufficient Savior and friend, and Lord. You're ready for anything when you know Christ. And uh, Paul argues that, doesn't he? Here, follow along. I'm reading from the New King James Translation of Holy Scripture, Philippians 4 verse 10, "'But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity.' Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ready for anything? Well, you are. If you're depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day, I like to play golf. Not saying I'm good at it, I just like to play it. But I'm not sure I want to play Calcutta Country Club and golf course in India. Because if you get a hold of the player's handbook and you read rule number 10, it will say, play the ball where the monkey drops it. Now, let me explain that. You see, that golf course sits amidst the slums of Calcutta. It's a lush, beautiful country club and golf course, and lining the fairways are are thick and luscious groves of magnolia trees. And those magnolia trees have become a home to a large population of monkeys. And no one can explain this, but these monkeys have grown to to like bouncing golf balls— and if you tee up and you hit the ball down the fairway, there's usually a rustling of the leaves, and a bunch of these little bandits come out, and they grab your ball. And unless you stop them, they're back into the magnolia trees, and you know what? You've got to start all over again. But most of the time, they are um, chased down by a caddy wheeling a forearm, and it usually causes them to scamper and drop the ball, hence rule 10. Play the ball where the monkey drops it, even if it's in the rough or in a bunker. And you know what? As I've thought about that, can I suggest to you as a student body here at the Master's University, that's life. Life is like playing golf at the Calcutta Country Club and golf course. It has a way of messing up your game plan, because you can tee up, and you can swing for success, But then life does something to you, a doctor's report, a financial reversal, a relationship that breaks down, a set of adverse circumstances, and you find yourself playing out of the rough. You find yourself in a bunker. And I want to tell you, young people, at that point in life, you've got to learn to play the ball where life drops it. You've got to learn contentment in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Because I'm going to give you a good piece of advice this morning. Write it down and think about it. Life is 10% what you make it. It's 90% how you take it. As I look at those in life who have succeeded in sports, in ministry, in business, I find that it's more to do with attitude than aptitude. And so, I want to remind you this morning of the need, in the words of Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, you need to develop the art of divine contentment. You need to learn to play the ball wherever life drops it. Make the best of it. And I want to tell you, in Christ, you're ready for anything. That's the argument that Paul makes here in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 10 through 13. Paul defines contentment as an ability to overcome under the circumstances by means of the sufficient strength of the indwelling Christ. Contentment is not uh, pretending that things are better than they are. Contentment is not not desiring a better day. But contentment is living in the moment and overcoming under the circumstances by means of the sufficient strength of Jesus Christ indwelling you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen to the words of Warren Wiersbe. We cannot control or change the world around us, but we can control the world within us. And it has been said that life What life does to us depends upon what life finds in us. And what life ought to find in the Christian is Christ, the hope of glory, and a sufficient strength that allows us to adjust to whatever circumstances. Even if we're in the rough, we can play the ball where life drops it. Because the Christ who is above all circumstances is within me in the circumstances, making me equal to the circumstances. That's the thesis of Paul here. Now, before we look at these verses in and of themselves, I I just want to notice something I think is very interesting, because you've got an interesting contrast in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Because here in chapter 4, Paul encourages us to be content. Yet in chapter 3, he expresses a discontentment. Look at verse uh, 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but the one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I reach forward to those things which are ahead and I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a holy discontentment here, there's a holy dissatisfaction here, and that's a good thing. In fact, if you read, and I recommend you read The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson, in it he says that we should be um, discontent about three things. We should not be content in our natural state. That means if we're not born again, if we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to urgently repent of our sin and and, and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and escape the Damocles sword of God's impending wrath. Don't be content with your natural state. If you're in Adam, get into Christ. And he says, secondly, don't be content with circumstances that dishonor God. If you're out of God's will, if you're a disobedient Christian, if you're lagging behind in your walk with God, fix that and fix it quick. And then he said this thirdly, don't be content with little grace. Don't be satisfied with where you are with God. Desire more of God's power and God's blessing and God's benediction in your life. So, on the one hand, Paul says, be discontent. You know, draw a line under your prayer life, draw a line under your study of God's Word, draw a line under your service for Christ, draw a line under your evangelism for the kingdom of God, and say, okay, so far so good, but I'm going to do more. But then in chapter 4, he says, be content. Be discontent, be content. Here's the difference. I just think it's worth thinking out. Never be happy with who you are but always be happy with where you are. Be content with where you are. Don't be content with who you are. You can't change the circumstances, but you can change and grow within the circumstances. So, let's come and look at the text. And remind yourself here, Paul didn't write this from an armchair. He didn't write this from the belly of an air-conditioned seminary library. He wrote this from a prison cell. He was under house arrest. Read his story in Acts 28. It's AD 60 to 62. It's his first imprisonment. He's writing to a church that he loved uh, and uh, to bring them up to date with what's going on in his life and to thank them for the gift that they had sent the minister to his need by the hand of Epaphroditus. And so he writes to bring them up to date to where, where he's at, and to thank them for their continued care. And you pick up the theme here in verse 10. Three things, his celebration, his contentment, and thirdly, his confidence. Let's look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. That's his celebration. He's rejoicing and celebrating God's goodness to him by the hand of the Philippians. His cup was full of joy, and they had a hand in filling it. In fact, there are several purposes to this letter, and one of them is to give thanks to the church at Philippi. It's a receipt of thanks. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, we read, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, When you get to chapter 4, in this last section, he finishes by thanking them for the care they have shown once again. In fact, in the middle, chapter 2, he'll talk about his gratefulness for Epaphroditus coming quite a distance, around 800 miles, to bring to him a gift from the heart and from the hand of the church at Philippi. So, he's celebrating that, and he celebrates their real care their, 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 their redemptive care and their repeated care. I'm not going to get into all of that because I want to serve other purposes this morning, but he's thankful for the fact that they loved him deeply. This was real care, this was more than the milk of human kindness this was indeed prompted by the gospel their sharing in the enterprise of world evangelism with him and it was repeated that's the word i really want to hone down on it was real and it was redemptive but it was repeated he notice notice what he says now at last your care for me has flourished again If you scroll down to verse 16, he acknowledges a former time when he was in Thessalonica, how they sent aid once and again for my necessities. This was a church that deeply loved the Apostle Paul and was deeply invested in his ministry. And for whatever reason, they hadn't been able to meet his need. All kinds of speculation about that. Maybe they didn't have the funds at the time. If you read 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2, they were a poor church in Macedonia. Maybe maybe they didn't have the ability that they now have. Could it be that uh, Paul was inaccessible for a period of time and they couldn't get to him? Maybe no one was available to take the gift and undertake the arduous journey. Uh, We don't know, but all of a sudden uh, their love for him, their care for him has flourished again look at that verb, flourished. It's a wonderful little word. And if you like flowers and horticulture and agriculture, then this is your word because it means, uh, it, it pictures trees that are putting forth fresh sprouts. It speaks of flowers that are blooming in spring. And in some sense, if you were to paint the word picture, Paul is saying that that you brought a little bit of spring to my winter. It's beautiful. You've refreshed me. You've cared for me again. You've brightened my day. You've gladdened my heart. I'm just so thankful for for you guys, for your real care, your redemptive care, and your repeated care. You've come through again. So thankful. And what what are we to do with that? We could do several things. One thing I want to do with it is just to remind us if we're building a case against discontentment, and a case for contentment, I would argue, would, would you not with me, that um, cultivating a spirit of gratitude goes a long way to producing contentment. Cultivating a spirit of gratitude goes a long way to producing contentment. I hope you don't take life for granted. I hope you take life with gratitude that you know that you're doing better than you deserve. And if you've got eyes to see, every day is spackled with God's goodness and mercy. There's always something to give thanks for. And I would encourage you to um, cultivate a spirit of gratitude. Paul will say to them back in chapter 2 in verse 14, Do all things without complaining and murmuring. Someone has said that uh, over six days God created the earth, and the seventh He rested, and the eighth He started taking complaints. Well, I know that's not true, but but there's a measure of truth to it because we've tended to complain a lot, bellyache a lot, and Paul is arguing, even in difficult circumstances, to to look for those things for which you can be grateful because um, being thankful will focus you on what you have, not on what you don't have. Being thankful will undercut the desire for more. Being thankful will breed humility. Being thankful will give you perspective. Matthew Henry was a great Puritan. Most preachers have his commentary in one volume somewhere on their shelves. I was interested one day to learn about an incident in his life when he was accosted and robbed. And after he was the victim of this crime, he sat down and wrote four things he was thankful for. Here's what he said. Number one, I'm thankful it was the first time I was robbed. I'm not sure I ever come up with that one, but he came up with it. It was pretty good. Here's number two, thankful that they took my wallet and not my life three, thankful there wasn't much in the wallet. (laughs) Number four, thankful it was me and not someone else. Wow, I got growing to do. What about you? That's powerful. And I think when you and I can cultivate a spirit of gratitude grounded in gospel humility, thankful for any token of God's goodness and mercy. It will be the first step towards biblical contentment. But we not only have what I call His celebration, let's look at His contentment. Because here's what's interesting. Almost in the same breath, having thanked them for what they gave, acknowledging that they have met His need once more, they have brought spring to His winter, Paul, on the one hand, having complimented them, kind of almost takes the compliment back because he says in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need. Now, he's certainly not poo-pooing their kindness, but he is wanting them to understand that his contentment, his joy, his sense of well-being, his experience of God's peace is not tied to what they give him. He's thankful for it, grateful for it, but he wants him to know if Epaphroditus had never came, if if the gift had never been delivered, he would still be the same man with a smile on his face and a joy in his heart and a spring in his step. Because he's kind of using this repeated kindness of theirs to, to bring them to see that he's doing well, thankful for their gift, but he wants them to know that in Christ he's ready for anything. You know, you know, the gift makes it a little bit easier, but he's got a, a sufficiency in the Lord Jesus Christ that makes him ready for, for, for anything. And you and I want to, we want to look at this in fact, before I, I look at this whole issue of contentment, let me underscore and, and make an argument for what I've just said, because isn't it interesting if you read uh, this chapter, you'll see that, that Paul was more excited about what the gift would do for them than what it would do for him. He's thankful for it, but, but again, remember, his, his happiness, his joy, his contentment is not tied to it. And, and you see this, he said, look, you know, I, I, I don't seek the gift, verse 17, but I, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He's more excited about what this gift will do for them than what it's done for Him, because it's going to rebound to their eternal dividend. God's going to bless them for blessing His servant. He's glad for the fruit it'll produce in their life. So, so let's look at this contentment. There's three things about it, Number one, I want you to see that it's dynamic contentment. Dynamic contentment. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, notice these words, in whatever state I am. I didn't know Paul started that trend, whatever. You know, whatever. Well, here he's saying, whatever. I've learned, in whatever, to be content. I know how to be a beast. I know how to abound. Notice these words, everywhere and in all things. Is that dynamic or what? This this is a contentment that can be stretched over any circumstance in life. If Paul was a plant, he'd be a perennial. He flowers all year round. His love for Jesus Christ, his commitment to the gospel is not seasonal. He's ready for anything because he can do all things through Christ. Notice the verbs, beast and abound. Some of my research has discovered that, that these words have been used in a technical sense in Paul's day for the incoming tide and the outgoing tide. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm the same person. My contentment is solid, my joy unending, regardless of whether the tide of God's blessing is coming in or in His mysterious providence it's going out. I know how to be full, know how to be hungry. Interesting dynamic, isn't it? I mean, don't forget, Paul was raised in a rich aristocratic Jewish home went to the best schools. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had a, 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 quite a platform within that community. He was born to some degree with a silver spoon in his mouth, but that all changes on the road to Damascus and the days that followed that. And Paul tells us in his own autobiography here in Philippians 3, but, but you know what? I counted that all loss, rubbish, that I might know Him and the excellency of who He is. Paul knows what it is to be full. But as a minister of the gospel, he knows what it is to be empty, to be hounded and persecuted. And you say, Paul, what did that do to you? Did you shrivel spiritually? No, I'm a perennial. I've learned in whatever circumstance I'm in to be content because Christ is over my circumstances, within me, in my circumstances, supplying strength that makes me equal to my circumstances. This is dynamic, young people. You want to kneel, this down. As you enjoy the hallowed halls of this school, life will still track you down. It'll it will bring its fair share of troubles and trials. You'll tee up, and you'll swing for success, and then all of a sudden you'll be playing out of the rough, and you've got to learn to play the ball where life drops it. And and the gospel and, and the indwelling Christ and the sufficiency of God's grace supplies us a dynamic ability to do that. And it is a challenge because it turns our thinking on its head Because our happiness is usually tied to happenings. And most of us don't say, I'm happy because God loves me. Jesus died for me. The Spirit indwells me. I've got the great and exceeding promises of God. We usually don't say, I'm happy because. We usually say, I'd be happy if... he paid more attention to me in in science class. I'd be happy if my bank balance looked a little fatter than it does. I'd be happy if I didn't feel this way. You get it? But that's not biblical contentment. Biblical contentment is I'm happy because, not I'm happy if. But, But we tend to tie our happiness to happenings, Our contentment is married to our circumstances, and that ought not to be the case. Maybe you've you've heard this before. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature." I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted to be young and free of spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age that I wanted the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. That's the challenge of Paul. In Christ, we've always got what we need to satisfy our deepest concerns. And that's why we can always be content. This is dynamic. Secondly, it's developing. It's a dynamic contentment, and it's a developing contentment. Look at verses 11 and 12 again with me. Circle the words learned. There are two different Greek words. The first word in verse 11 speaks of just the acquisition of knowledge. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. But in verse 12, he says, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer and eat. That's a very interesting word. It, it was a word out of the mystery religions of the East. I kind can of imagine um, one of the National Treasure movies or uh, Indiana Jones series. Remember, they get down into one of these labyrinths or into some kind of room, and they've got to work out the clues, and then they go from one room to the next room. Because you see, back then in some of these secret societies and these mystery religions, this is the word here, you went from one degree of learning to another. You're in a certain part, then you graduated to another higher level of learning, and on and on it went. And that, interestingly, is the word that Paul uses. And he's trying to teach us, I think, that contentment doesn't come easily, doesn't come instantaneously. It's not the fruit of a certain temperament. It's not even a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. What it is, is you and I submitting to whatever circumstances in His providence God puts us through, and in that classroom we learn whatever lesson God's going to teach us. Let me tell you two things about contentment we've already picked up. Contentment is internal, not external. And contentment is learned, it's not acquired. That's why I've said to my congregation that there's nothing more gross in God's kingdom than a whiny old Christian. Because by now, they should have learned contentment. Because contentment grows as we grow. We learn it as we experience life in all its different classrooms, in all its different experiences. And you know what? If you want to learn contentment, you need to submit to the providence of God wherever He has you, whatever you're facing, no matter how bitter the the pill, swallow it because there's medicine in it. Because God's going to teach you something about yourself that you never knew. Maybe how worldly you are how independent you are. God's going to teach you something about Himself, how glorious and sufficient and marvelous He is and how much He has loved you in His Son. And you're going to see something more of the promises of God's Word. God's going to teach you something about life and the material world and how fleeting life is and how dissatisfying things really are. Going to learn a lot, and you need to learn those things. Remember what David says that you know what? I went astray until I was afflicted, and then I learned your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 71. You know, I came across something written by a friend of mine called Ray Pritchard, and Ray, in his book, Man of Honor, talks about a broadcast some years ago by Jim Warren on Primetime America, which was a broadcast on the Moody Broadcasting Network out of Chicago. And in it, Jim said this, When hard times come, be a student, not a victim. And Ray Pritchard said that hit me like a, you know, a truck. And Ray sat down he thought about that. Be a student, not a victim. And and here's what he said. A victim says, why did this happen to me? A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim blames others for his problems. A student asks, how much of this did I bring on myself? A victim looks at everyone else and cries out, life isn't fair. A student looks at life and says, what happened to me could happen to anybody. A victim would rather complain than find a solution. A student has no time to complain because he's too busy making the best of the situation. A victim feels sorry for himself that he has no time for others. A student so focuses on helping others that he has no time to feel sorry for himself. A victim begs God to remove all the problems of life so he can be happy. A student has learned through the problems of life, that God alone is the source of His happiness. I love that. Be a student in the midst of your circumstances, not a victim, and learn the art of divine contentment. Because contentment is dynamic, contentment is developing. Finally, and we're setting ourselves up for our closing thought, it's divine contentment. Dynamic, developing, divine You see, contentment is not external, it's internal. It's not tied to your circumstances. Because Paul said, I've learned it in a whole lot of circumstances, good and bad, full and empty. And it's not instantaneous, it's not innate, it doesn't come naturally, it's something we learn in the school of hard knocks. And finally, it's divine in source, not human. Because it's interesting, this word content, I mean, we should have looked at this a long time ago. It's the heart of what we're saying here. Look at what Paul says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That's an interesting word. It's the word a stoic would use. Stoicism was a philosophy in Paul's day that was about self-mastery, getting to a place in life where you were sufficient in and of yourself. And to get there, you tended to downplay emotions. You tended to detach yourself from dependence on other people, and you looked in. Kind of something like the British, uh, uh, you know, stiff upper lip. Kind of, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That was stoicism. Finding enough in yourself mastering your desires and your emotions and your fears. Paul takes that word and says, thank you, I want to baptize it with Christian meaning. So, this is a word that literally means sufficient, self-mastery, self-sufficiency. And Paul says, hey, I'm sufficient, but we know he doesn't mean that in and of himself. His contentment is not Human in source, it's divine in source, because now in union with Christ, he has all the sufficiency of God's grace now available to him. In fact, I like what Warren Wearsby says contentment then is actually containment. I like that. You could translate the word contentment with the word containment. I've learned in whatever state I am to be contained. I'm sufficient, I'm ready, I'm able. Listen to Wiersbe, contentment then is actually containment, having the spiritual resources within to face life courageously and handle it successfully. Contentment is divine adequacy. Contentment is having that spiritual artesian well within so that you don't have to run to the broken cisterns of the world to get what you need. The power of Christ in the inner man is all that we need for the demands of life. Amen? It's wonderful. We're ready for anything because the Christ, He is over our circumstances, is within us in our circumstances, and He's an artesian well of grace and mercy and that which we need to be equal to our circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul says, we are not sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, he says that God has made all grace abound to us in all things. Remember when when God came to Moses in Exodus 3 and called him to go and deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt? And Moses is stunned and they're hey I think you got the wrong address. Not me. Uh, you know? I got a stammering tongue, I'm riddled with fear, not me. But God speaks to Moses and said, "No, you're the guy." And how does God reveal himself? He says, "Moses, when the people say who sent you, you tell them what? I am sent you." The title, I Am, speaks of God's self-existence, the fact that God is dependent on no one, that God has existed before anything else existed, that God is sufficiently and fully contained within Himself. In fact, when God speaks to Moses, what does He do? He speaks out of what? A burning bush that never exhausts itself. Because the God who is calling Moses to this difficult task is inexhaustible Himself and will supply to Moses that which he needs. Tell him, I am sent you, and I am enough. That's why I love what R.C. Sproul says, God doesn't need me to be me for him to be him, but I need God to be him for me to be me. And he is, which brings us to our last thought. More could be said there, but we are sufficient in God Oh, Lord, let me say this to you in passing. If you don't have a little bit of fun with people, next time somebody asks you how you're doing, you could say this, well, apart from knowing God and this love in Jesus Christ, uh, apart from um, the great and exceeding promises of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fact that I'm going to heaven, I'm not doing too well. But you see, that's the opposite of what Paul's saying. That's he, you know, hey Paul, you're you you you're in prison. Tough time, huh? Yep. How are you doing? Paul's gonna say, "I'll tell you how I'm doing. I'm doing good because God loves me. Jesus is in me. The Spirit is my comfort. The Word of God, my treasure. Heaven, my home. That's I'm doing well. Content." Which brings us to his confidence, his celebration, verse 10, his contentment, verse 11 and 12, now his confidence, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the secret sauce in his contentment. Now, let's just um, deal with this. This is a verse that's been greatly abused and misused, you know, you'll see it on the t-shirts of athletes, you know, I can do all things through Christ, you know. So I'm going to win in bench press, you know, whatever. Or, you know, I've, I've you know, I almost heard guys that would come up to the first tee, you know, like me, they stink at golf, but they go, hey, you know, I'm going I'm to head around to 69 today because I can do all things through Christ who thanks in me. No, you can't. You're still going to stink. That's not what this verse is about. Notice all things in verse 13. I can do all things. Circle it. Don't be be afraid to mark your Bible. Circle it and draw draw a line up to the preceding verse in verse 12. Circle it, all things. It's the everywhere and all things of verse 12 that Christ will strengthen you for in verse 13. Not that you can defy gravity. Play the best round of golf in your life, band, press, whatever. No, this is strength to live out the will of God in harrowing circumstances for His glory. This would be to the persecuted saint a promise to survive persecution and the flames of a martyr's death. That's the all things. The all things of 13 is the all things of 12, not the all things of what you want, but the all things that God puts you through. And Paul's confident he can handle that. And we're kind of, as we close, you know, he's, he's just kind of bringing us to that thought, I've got, this, I've got this inner fortitude and I've got this, this resolve uh, that I can indeed deal with whatever life throws my way because the Christ who is above my circumstances is within me in my circumstances and He supplies all the strength and grace I need for my circumstances. I hope you've got that confidence. I hope we graduate in the next few years classes of young people who are ready for anything. They're not going to let life beat them down. They're not going to let life write a frown over their face just because things go south and things go sour. No! The graduates of, graduates of the Masters University have learned that Christ is all in all things. And if they're living within the will of God, whatever that providence may be, mysterious and tough, they're up for it. Because according to John 1 verse 16, of His fullness have we received grace for grace. That little phrase there, grace for grace, The word for could be translated instead of. Think about that. John 1, 16. Of His fullness, we have received grace instead of grace, or grace in the place of grace, or grace after grace. Someone illustrated like this. Imagine you're standing by a a creek, a stream, or a river, and you just, you know, pick a point on the side of the bank of the river, and you see water but if you really think about it, if you pick a point, it's water for water. It's water replacing water. It's water instead of water. One constant stream, and that's the image of John 1, 16. you know there's saving grace according to Ephesians 2, but there's strengthening grace according to 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. There's singing grace according to Colossians 4, There's sufficient grace according to 2 Corinthians 12. Whatever grace you need to live out the will of God wherever you are and whatever you're facing, it's there for you. Let me finish with this and we'll just pray in a word of benediction. Several years ago, my family and I had the joy of becoming American citizens. We were green card holders for some time and we went down to the Staples Center and got sworn in and said that we would renounce all allegiances to foreign potentates, queens, and kings. So, we, we said goodbye to Queen Elizabeth, and we embraced Abraham Lincoln and whatever. <laughs> and we're driving home, and I just talking to the girls, I says, girls, what, what a privilege. We've become citizens of what we believe now to be the greatest nation in the world. What a privilege. And I, and I said, what do we love about America? Well, I thought I'd get it going. I didn't shut up for a little while. I said, I love America. You know why? Because of its freedoms, freedom of speech, and freedom to bear arms, and freedom of assembly, the freedoms of this land. I love America because it's become a a home and a haven to nations all across the world, the tired and the persecuted. It's It's a wonderful country, the most integrated country in the world, no matter what they say. I says, girls, you know what I love about America? Our history is tied to American history. The Scots-Irish, my people, they came to America. In fact, if you read the story of the War of Independence, one British politician said that the American Revolution was nothing but a Scots-Irish rebellion. In fact, the British were winning until they got to the hills of Pennsylvania and met the Scots-Irish Protestants. (laughs) And then we give them a whooping you can thank me later. <laughs> and so we were on about this, you know, love of Israel. The Bible says, if you love Israel, God will bless you if you hate it. So we're gonna, I'm, I'm waxing eloquent, and then I realized, hey, I need to let the girls speak. So I said, girls, what do you think? And Beth, our youngest, she was sitting in the back of the car. She says, Dad, you know what I love about America? I said, tell me, Beth. She says, free refills. <laughs> yeah she got it. You've lived in Britain or gone to Europe. You know exactly what she's talking about. You know you, just, you know, you sell your house to get a Coca-Cola in England, and your dad gets you one. You know there's no more coming, and so you kind of work out over the next 50 minutes, if I take a sip every 17 minutes, I'll get to the bottom of the glass, just in time to finish my dinner. Free refills. Look, folks, all jokes aside, but we did laugh at that, and then I turned it. Girls, you know what? Isn't it grace to know that in God's kingdom you get free refills? Each and every day his mercy is new and his greatest faithfulness. In Christ, that's a present tense verb, Philippians 4, 13, He keeps pouring His strength into us. Are you ready for anything? Hope so. You're meant to say yes at that point, by the way. <laughs> I hope so. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank You for Your Word Thank you for chapel. Lord, I pray that this student body would embrace these weekly chapels and understand what a privilege to break the day up and hear the Word of God preached. And may they not just hear it, but do it. I pray for these young people. Thank you for them. Thank you for their joy for their worship, for their commitment to Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh God, over a lifetime that they would persevere, that they would be ready for anything, that they would learn contentment, containment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they realize that if, they, if their circumstances find them in God, they will find God in their circumstances. And that Christ is all in all things, all the time,